Welcome to The Clarifier. I'm your host, Angie Dissa, partner and coach at Talentism. In this podcast, we talk about Talentism's 3C model and how it applies to the world of business and leadership. Our three C's are clarity, which drives productivity, confusion, a natural human state, which occurs when expectations and reality fail to match, and certainty, the company killer, which takes root when individuals and teams' confusion is left untended. Each week, I talk to Talentism's executive coaches, our clients, and our founder, Jeff Hunter, to gather all their latest thoughts on the state of business, humans, and the world. Okay, folks, Jeff, welcome back. Um, I'm excited for our format today. It's a bit of an experiment for us. We've actually crowdsourced questions from listeners and clients. And so for our audience today, you can expect to hear us talk about solving systems and not symptoms. We had some questions around how to practically start solving systems how to take responsibility for the system that a leader or an individual has created around themselves, what to actually do as a first step. So we'll we'll take that topic first today, and I'd like to um, start by uh, turning it over to Jeff and saying, is there anything you want to remind our readers of or our listeners of from the conversation we had about um, solving systems as a way to truly unleash your potential? Yeah, and thank you, Angie. Always a pleasure to be here. Um, so let's let's just start with that very high level, which I think that you talked about. I use this phrase of like we we all build our own prisons and then go go hide in them. Uh, so we're all in these prisons of our own making, and they that has very practical effects. The prison is sort of like a system, <clears throat> and when we're founders or executives, the system um, we create it and then it runs us. And then we're completely baffled by what's happening around us. And we feel like everybody else is out to get us or, you know, these terrible, confused feelings that we as leaders get. Um, and, and that is often not a result of anybody having, being incompetent or nefarious or in some way failing us. But it's the thing, the system we built around us, the business we built around us is behaving exactly as we should have expected. We didn't expect it because we built it slowly and over time in little bits and pieces. We weren't really paying attention. And then when it starts doing the thing that hurts us, we can't make sense of it. Like there's got to be somebody to blame. There's got to be somebody in here somewhere who did something to me. Uh, And of course, then our big problem is A, that reduces productivity because it takes you into this deeply confused state and B is you can't learn because it's somebody else's fault. And yet as leaders, we all build these systems. And um, so actually, we're going to talk about this great topic, but actually I'd just like to uh, actually demonstrate what we're going to talk about and start with me. Uh, This morning, I, I hurt a team member who I care about deeply. I did it unintentionally. I did it uh, in the moment because I thought I was being a good manager, but I wasn't. I was being a terrible manager. It literally just happened a couple hours ago. Uh, and when I reflected after a very difficult interaction with this person where, um, you know, there's just a lot of a lot of tension and a lot of struggle and a lot of people feeling hurt and vulnerable, I 
I sat down and reflected on that, and it was quite obvious that uh, I had created this situation. Uh, I had done what I do, which is I have unreasonable expectations of myself as a leader and as a provider and as somebody who um, has made promises to a lot of people about what we're going to deliver and the change we're going to make in the world and the kind of place we're going to be. And I set those expectations, I set those standards very high for myself and then put myself in a, in a situation where the system I build to achieve that, of course, is in, inherently fragile. We're still a small company. We're, we've got a big number to meet this year. We're growing very fast. We're changing a lot to meet that number. People need to be in clarity in order to get the best out of themselves and to help each other. And yet I'm pushing and pushing and pushing and all that pushing is not coming from me being in clarity as a leader, but me being in fear, me being in fear that I will fail, me being in fear that I will be insufficient to help these people. And so I, um, and to meet my commitments. And so I set up these, I set up these convoluted systems and do all this stuff and I'm pushing people to task level. And of course it's, it's not only ineffective and it's breaking and, and it's, it's hurting people who I care about, but also it's, it's managing me. It's like turning around. How, how have I been spending my time this morning? I've been spending my time not in moving sales to the next level, which is my top priority right now as a founder and as a CEO, but it's, um, I instead was spending my time talking with people about their, uh, you know, their confusion and trying to help them get to clarity. So I, I quite literally built the system that uh, now is managing me, that is now prioritizing things for me. And, uh, and, I, and of course, in the midst of it, I have feelings of self-pity and I have feelings of, why don't people understand? Why aren't they working harder? But of course, when I took... Uh, took the time to reflect and really step back. It's quite obvious what's going on. It, the thing that we've been talking about, that I, in moments of confusion or not paying attention, being in sort of perpetual long-running blind spots, have built a system that is producing some incredible results in some ways, uh, which is beautiful and wonderful to behold, but also like very fragile and, and struggling in other ways. And in those ways, that system is now going to be managing me. Uh, and that's my fault. And it's an opportunity for me to learn. But it's primarily that learning can only happen when I start with me. And I start with uh, what I did to get us to this place so that I can learn from that and then start making the changes I need to so that we can get better. And ultimately, so I'm much less likely to end up hurting people I care about. I want, I want to thank you for um, going to that personal place. I think it helps so much to hear an articulation or an example of something real and real time to understand the anatomy of this practice you're talking about. At Talentism, we call it start with me. And I want to differentiate this from, you know, a concept like main character energy or I am the center of attention or something like that because I think start with me actually really requires somebody to be um, vulnerable <laughs> rather than selfish. And um, I want to just go slow through what I heard you say you did this morning. 
because I think breaking down the steps will uh, take it from something that looks very evolved that you do, Jeff, to something pretty simple that just about anyone can do. So what I heard you say is, I heard you say, this morning I was frustrated because somebody did something that felt like it let me down or some kind of emotion, right? So recognizing a feeling of emotion towards somebody else's action. Um, and, and we know at Talentism, and, and if we've listened to the last podcast, we know that often what comes up in those moments um, as part of our stress response, as part of our totally normal physiological response to confusion is a story about somebody else or our environment or ourselves that helps explain away that feeling, right? And so very easily that story could have come, that person isn't trying hard enough, they don't care enough. We would call that a bad, stupid, lazy narrative. So step one, notice feeling emotional about an outcome created by somebody else that runs counter to what I would have wanted or expected. Step number two, recognize that the natural response to that, you don't have to judge yourself for it, but you should recognize it. The natural response to that is to tell a story that explains why that outcome happens. That's probably coming from a place of protection and not necessarily from personal responsibility or clarity. Step number three I heard you do was, what would it actually look like to try and come from a place of personal responsibility. Well, as a very basic step, I don't have to be a really capable diagnoser of systems. I don't have to see myself perfectly from a third-party perspective. I just have to ask, what am I feeling in this situation, right? What, What could I be scared of right now that is maybe driving behaviors that are creating incentives in the system around me that I don't want. And I think the simplest way to ask that question is like, what am I most afraid could go wrong in the big picture of my life right now? And I heard you say that and it felt kind of connected to, will we build the business we need to? Will we hit the numbers that we need to? And no doubt leaders carrying a lot of weight on their shoulders for their organizations have some fear like that. And then I heard you say, okay, knowing that predictably, when I am coming from that fear, I do things that might confuse people. How can I look at my behavior in this situation and say, what could I have done that could be confusing to others? Now, Jeff, you've been doing this work for years, so it's not surprising to me that you would be able to look at your own behavior and come to some kind of useful observation around what subversive thing you might've been doing. For a lot of people, I think this is an important moment to get outside help, whether that's your coach, whether that's someone you trust, whether that's a teammate, to say, I probably can't see myself clearly in this moment. What am I doing from a place of unacknowledged fear that's actually causing confusion for others around me, undermining their ability to be at their best. Okay, so the steps of start with me I'm hearing is recognize when there's an outcome in your system you didn't want or feels unexpected to you, that normal behavior is blame the other person and that critical to actually breaking through that system, changing that system is recognizing what behavior you're doing, usually coming from a place of fear or protection, that's creating the outcomes you don't want. 
So that's the anatomy of what I heard you do. Tell me what in there I'm missing or what other steps you would offer to others to carry that forward. I think that's a great articulation of it. And I want to make a couple of things clear. I talked to my coach this morning. So um, (laughs) everybody needs help. If, If you set unreasonably high standards for yourself, either because you've fallen, just fallen into that trap unconsciously or because that's who you aspire to be, which is in my case, like I've always been the person who aspired to ever be better, ever be better to hold myself to the highest standards, et cetera. Regardless of who you are, like if if you're a founder or you're a CEO or you're an executive or, or whatever, and you have put yourself in the spot and you have put yourself in that spot, just to be clear, whether it feels that way or not, if you've put yourself in the spot where you have set standards and expectations for yourself that you feel you are, are failing to meet, then you need help. Um, you're not going to work through this productively. At the very least, you need help just to make sense of it. Hopefully, and this is the basis of Clarity Coaching, you need help to, to turn that into productive action, uh, design, you know, whatever. And so I talked to my coach this morning, even though, Angie, as you said, I have been practicing the discipline of start with me for the last decade structurally, like designed it 10 years ago, structurally and, and 30 plus years before that personally, uh, it doesn't matter how masterful any human being gets. They, we all uh, end up in a stuck. We all end up in a place where the, the void is great and the dark, the, the chasm is deep and it's dark and we find ourselves at the bottom of it. And reaching out to someone else and asking for that help is crucial. So I just wanted to clarify that point. I didn't uh, have this this thing happen this morning and then just sort of sit there and go, aha, <laughs> I, was, I felt terrible. I, I had cried at one point. I've let people down. I'm going to fail. Like all these things that so many founders feel, uh, I felt them and I got help in order to work through them. Yeah. Now... So I and so I wanted to say that, and then just to reiterate, yes, Trevor and I. Trevor is uh, the head of IP at Talentism and and a master coach himself. Trevor and I have had this ongoing conversation for I don't know eight years. Is the first question you start with when you find yourself confused? How do I feel, or what am I missing? I like what am I missing. But I think we're in general agreement that for most people, how do I feel is the right first question. Orient back inward. Don't get it caught in the narrative outward as you described. It's not everybody else that's doing it to you. You're feeling bad. See that, experience that, understand that, be able to give voice to it. And there's an excellent, excellent book about, um, and I'm so sorry I can't remember the author's name, but I think the title of the book is How Emotions Are Made where one of the things that she talks about, the author talks about, is how, especially in in Western societies with achievers like us, we just don't have familiarity with internal experience, nor do we have the language to be able to navigate that well. Uh, And so that practice, I think, is really important for leaders to say, like, I'm having an emotion, it feels bad, and I'm like to, like, get better at navigating that. 
in order for me to become better and be a better leader and build better companies. I appreciate that. And um, for listeners and for the show show notes, that's Lisa Feldman Barrett, How Emotions Are Made. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, um, the, the thing I think would be useful at this point is to take readers and listeners through uh, what comes next. How do I make that practice of recognizing my emotion and my protection behavior that may be creating a subversive system that I'm then trapped in? What do I do next to take a positive step to change what I've created? Because we so often say the reason to start with me is, yes, of course, it can feel cathartic, but it's actually extremely practical and helps you regularly achieve your goals better, faster, cheaper. So talk to us about that, Jeff. It's a great question, and, I'll, and I'm going to get to it, but let me say something that I was having a coaching session last week with with a client. Uh, she's fantastic. She's just amazing. And and we were going through this thing of she wanted to know about uh, a particular thing with regards to goals, which we're going to talk about later. And I, I gave her the following answer, and she was so displeased with me. You could see in her eyes, you know, we were on Zoom, you could see in her eyes how upset she was with this answer. So I can only imagine all those listeners or readers out in the dark about to hear this answer and be like, well, that's bullshit. But here we go anyway. Um yeah, so I think there are certain disciplines uh, th- where you engage in the discipline because there's a what's next sort of orientation. Uh, so like you practice your free throws because what's next is you're in, a, you're in a game and you make more free throws. That's why you're practicing your free throws. You're not out there just doing it for kicks. But there are certain disciplines that actually we'll talk about what's next like how to how to take up this orientation internal orientation to start with me and 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 use it productively but i really want to highlight for for readers and listeners this is a lot like meditation the practice must be an end in and of itself because if what you're trying to do is figure out how to nail leadership like i got my 10 step checklist for leadership and start with me as number three on it, you're going to suck at it. So so there has to be an orientation like this is a practice that's worthwhile uh, in order for you to be good at being any number of different roles, any number of different responsibilities you have. Having said that, the act of start with me primarily is an act of trying to get better at managing, understanding, and managing the most critical aspect of any business, which is your attention. So that's what you're doing is, in absence of self-awareness, attention is robbed by your confusion. Okay? So, So what happens is we all get confused. We've talked about that a lot. We expect one thing, we experience another. The reaction to that is not rational. It's emotional. Physiologically, we experience the unpleasantness of emotion. That is a that is a uh, evolutionary imperative. Confusion should not feel good. It should inspire us to action. A lot of times, we're instead frozen and we make up narratives. All the things that we're talking about, you're describing. 
And so what you want to do is see in that moment that attention has been stolen because your mind is going to spin down on this. I'm not talking about consciousness. I'm not talking about being awake. I'm talking about being able to orient to your mind to the highest, most important priority in front of you. So this morning when I woke up, I had three things I had to get done this morning. For sure, I had to get these three things done. I'd made commitments to other people. They were all mission critical for a fast-growing startup for the CEO to be handling. And as of now, when we're recording this, it's now 11.31 a.m. Eastern time, I have not done any of those three things. So what does this mean? What it means is that my attention got triggered this morning. I got, I got a confusion response, and I, and I circled down into it. My attention was robbed by this event. And it's an event of not of anybody else's making. It's an event of my making. It's an event that's, like again, created by the system I've created. And so in that moment, what's next is to, as you say, see it and get help or see it and go talk it out. Okay. So see it and get help. Like this morning was a really bad one for me. And so I needed help. Um, But there are lots of times where your attention gets robbed because you're in the midst of confusion and it's not as agitating. It's not as negative, but it's still unpleasant. And then usually it has to do with another person or another group of people. And then you can go talk it out. And when I say talk it out, I think this is, this is really important. What I'm saying is you will show up to the conversation with a bias towards personal responsibility. And you will deploy start with me as the practical method of demonstrating that personal responsibility. So you won't show up, just to be clear, and say, hey, I'm sure this is my fault, but you guys are assholes. That's not what we're talking about. By the way, I've seen a lot of people do that using nicer language and longer sentences than I just did, but I see a lot of people do that. What I'm saying is you'll show up to the conversation and you'll say, I'm confused. This is what's happening to me. This is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. And engage in the conversation through that. Practically, this is important because it's more likely to create safety and safety is necessary to have good conversations that lead to learning and uh, evolution. So it's really important to understand that you would show up with this perspective of, I'm sure there's something I'm missing. I'm sure there's something I'm doing here. I'm sure there's something I, I definitely feel this way. I'm like, the feeling is authentic. And I want to have an exchange with somebody, a conversation to be able to figure out those things. What am I missing? What am I not seeing? And in that, that bias to personal responsibility, the learning that, that flows from that, you are also hopefully creating the safety for other people to do the same. And to take responsibility for themselves in that moment as well. Like actually, hey, Jeff, you're not missing. In that particular case, you're not. I, I committed to delivering something on Thursday and in, here we are on Friday and you still don't have it. That's right. That's what happened. 
how much more productive is that conversation than the standard conversation I see? And it, quite literally, I could take any work week, no matter how fabulous it is, and either through my coaching or, or my internal work, have 20 or 30 of these conversations that where you can see how if I showed up as leader or as coach, I'm like, hey, listen, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. It's accusatory. I'm lashing out. I'm not showing any personal responsibility. You're going to see the person on the other side get defensive. They're going to feel under threat, of course. They're not actually learning anything. You're not learning anything. And nothing gets resolved. The best in that case that the leader can hope for is that someone else is going to roll over into submission and agree that they failed in some way they actually don't really feel. And by the way, I'm saying that's the best you can hope for, and that's a terrible outcome. But at the very least, you could say, well, okay, somebody, you know, like, somebody said it was their fault and walk away. Um, so the next productive thing you can do is to either get the help when it's really bad, get, turn to your clarity coach, turn to somebody who you trust to help you make sense of it so you can sort it out, or have the, have the productive conversation bringing in that start with me bias to personal responsibility to initiate the exploration. Okay. That, that was very useful. If you don't mind, I'd like to go slow just one more time through the anatomy or the, the steps of, of what you just said. So what I don't want to skip past is I think we're suggesting to listeners and, and what we, we, we help our clients to do is Start with me, not just in a dark room by yourself <laughs> or with your coach, but actually with your team. And in fact, most often with the person or people who are at the center of the thing that's causing you confusion and triggering that fearful response within you. And so that, that also requires some amount of courage. And I want to acknowledge that, especially for leaders who may come from environments that haven't prioritized or rewarded that level of openness and vulnerability in service of creating a safe environment for learning and for greater mutual understanding. So the steps I heard you say were in that conversation where you go and you speak to the people directly involved in the confusion you're experiencing to simply start by saying, hey, this is, there is, I'm experiencing confusion and this is what's happening for me. And a natural outcome of taking that very simple step is one, letting go of the typical narrative that shows up, which is usually the it's your fault narrative, and replacing it with the ability to be somewhat curious. This is what's happening for me. That must mean I'm missing something. I'm missing what's happening for you, person on the other side of the table or the Zoom screen. So there's a curiosity that can show up there that really works in service of learning, of mutual understanding. And then the other thing I heard is it sets a standard around personal responsibility for the group, especially if the leader is doing it. So it creates the safety and starts to impart the expectation that what we do here is we take responsibility. So it makes it safe and potentially even rewarded for somebody else to say, oh yeah, this is what's happening for me and this is what I'm probably missing or what could I be missing? And when all those walls come down, the speed of the group's ability to learn, to get to the heart of the matter, for each person to change the thing that is 
for them getting in the way of getting to the goal, that all goes a lot faster. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yes. Yeah, and by the way, I think there's lots of, I've always been fascinated by the people ops work that Google did to identify uh, psychological safety as the core of great management at Google more than, you know, clear goals or objectives or anything else. I'm just talking about what is the practical way that a leader demonstrates personal responsibility in order to develop that safety. You, You cannot, a group of people that exists in a hierarchy where one member of the group can exclude or fire or demote or other castigate or otherwise harm a member of that group. If that person doesn't start demonstrating self-awareness, self-skepticism, personal responsibility, why would you ever expect that of anybody else? And if nobody else is doing it, then you're, you're tying your problem-solving hand behind your back. You're trying to confront very difficult, multi-threaded, multivariate problems to get to the root of why they're exist- occurring, diagnose them well, change the design so that you're constantly improving, getting faster. You're taking the most important tool in your, in your toolkit off the table and saying, okay, well, we'll we're going to figure this out, but we're going to do it with everybody seeking to protect themselves from each other. It's nuts. So I don't think what I'm speaking about is a sort of a sociological or psychological imperative or anything like that. For me, the data supports, I have lots of experiences with this, both in managing myself as well as like leading other teams in lots of different places with coaching. I think Google's data supports it. There's other data that supports it. It's like managers who initiate a psychological safety and do that through demonstrating the behavior, you know, the leader eater eats last by going first kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> I think that what they're doing is they're setting themselves up for success in a volatile, uncertain world uh, where things are going to change really rapidly. And of course, mistakes are, are not only um, probable, but to be expected. I'd like to highlight a point here because I think um, out of context, the use of the term psychological safety can feel a little bit... Uh, uh, kumbaya, <laughs> um, with psychological safety is a means and not an end is what I'm hearing you say. Um, and that the, the end that's available, uh, when really pursuing creating an environment of psychological safety is much more, um, uh, well-informed, fast moving problem solving. Because people around a psychologically safe table are volunteering what's actually happening, not protecting themselves by putting forward what they think will look or sound best. Yeah, that's right. So let me talk a little bit about psychological safety, but let me just respond to that point. So let's just view the conversation. Let's view a conversation where people are trying to solve a problem as the first thing they're trying to do is get all available data on the table. Human beings filter data. That's called, that's a bias, right? So, like, human beings inherently have heuristic biases. You can't not have them. 
So your brain is at an unconscious, inaccessible level, filtering data all the time. To get the best possible data into the conversation, you need people who are going to be willing to bring up uncomfortable things. If they're not willing to bring up uncomfortable things, they um, then you get bad data. If you have bad data, you're going to have bad diagnosis, and you have bad diagnosis, you'll have a bad fix. Um, so psychological safety, and my and, I'm, and I'll talk about that for a second. Psychological safety for me is an inherently practical thing. I, for a period of time in my career, I, I went around the country and I had debates with leaders who really wanted to talk to me about hard skills versus soft skills. These hard-bitten business guys who really knew what was what and had been successful, and they want to have these big conversations and debates in front of their C-suite about uh, hard skills versus soft skills. And they took the hard skill side and I took the soft skill side. And while I didn't win all of those debates, I, I think most of them were productive in that people started to understand the pattern of failure in fast growth companies is all on the quote unquote soft skill side. It is not on the hard skill side. That's just terrible diagnosis on people's part. So I know you think, I know people think like, well, I, the company failed because we didn't have the right strategy. You could have hired 50 different consultants who would come and give you the right strategy. The, the right, quote unquote, right strategy was always available to you. The reality is you didn't know yourself well enough to know you had no intention of executing this strategy. Or even if you had the intention of executing the strategy, you were deeply uncomfortable with what that strategy said about you as a leader, and so you kept avoiding all the hard points about it. Um, so, so to me, this like soft skill stuff where I live is as a person who's a founder of, um, you know, not only Talentism but a co-founder of Dive In, co-founding another company, and doing all this stuff. It is the most practical lens into how to build a winning company, um, and then. When we're talking about psychological safety, I, psychological safety is not a moral imperative, which is sort of how it's interpreted a lot by people. You, moral, psychological safety means different things depending on what your goal is. <clears throat> For us, our goal is to systematically unleash human potential. That's our purpose. That's why talentism is here. And that's important to us because we believe that there's just so much more potential sitting around any executive table than is actually being deployed for the benefit of the enterprise. So there's just a lot of waste. Um, and then we, you know, diagnose that and have figured out why that waste exists, et cetera. But if you care about unleashing human potential, what psychological safety means is the requisite condition to be uncomfortable, to be productively uncomfortable. That's what that means. Like there's the people at the table are, uh, there's enough psychological safety at the table for a person to say, it's worth the risk of me speaking up. Th for other people, psychological safety could mean, because they have a different goal, which is to either be free of conflict or to be um, you know, free of pain or, or a lot of other goals, all of which are noble goals, but just not our goals. Um, in that case, psychological safety literally means to protect one a person from an unpleasant experience. 
And that is not what I'm speaking about. A team that is high functioning, that is producing great results, a team where later in your life you look back with nostalgia and reverence to that team and you say, oh my gosh, we were all at our best. There's going to be a lot of discomfort at that table. There's going to be conflict at that table. That's, that is de facto going to be true. And so what I mean by psychological safety is what is the leader or manager of that group doing to ensure that there is the maximum amount of productive uh, discomfort to be able to help people learn and grow into their potential and therefore unleash that potential for the benefit of themselves and the enterprise? I think that's um, such an important and helpful distinction that psychological safety in the, in the context that we're talking about it, what it means for us as an important means to an end, is not always feeling comfortable and happy. <laughs> it is feeling sufficiently safe to take risks and in fact to try uncomfortable things in the service of a greater goal. Yes. Yeah. So we, you brought up courage earlier and we talk a lot about courage. Uh, if you, the design of your organization is people need to be self-aware, but have incredible levels of courage. So everyone else needs to have self-awareness, like speak up and say, I'm not good at this, or I need help. Things that, that are hard, difficult to say in groups of professionals where you feel like you're being judged. If your standard is, hey, listen, uh, everybody here has got to have had incredible levels of courage. That's the expectation. Well, you can have that expectation, but the reality is you've just narrowed your recruiting pool down by like 98%. Because um, courage is situational and it's difficult. I mean, I've talked at length about hiring um, in former organizations, hiring people from the special forces who, who by any ostensible measure were the most courageous human beings I'd ever met in my life. And then we would say, okay, you got to go into this room and talk to this person and their knees would buckle because th it was a much, much different thing than running to the sound of gunfire. Running, running towards the sound of gunfire is existential. It's mortal it's in any, any way you'd want to look at it, it's a much higher risk activity than walking into our boardroom and making a presentation. And yet, because of the way the mind works, that was so deeply unfamiliar and so from, uh, deeply risky to them that it was everything they could do to muster their courage to get in there. So when leaders don't start with themselves, but instead start with others and say, everyone here has got to demonstrate courage. I won't, but you all do. Well, you can do that. And then most people aren't going to work for you. And even if they did want to work for you, like the number of people on earth who can meet the standard of situationally, uh, you know, situationally absent courage basically falls down to sociopaths, which by the way, means I'm sure there's a lot of great firms out there have been built on that principle. But the reality is for most of us, that doesn't make any sense. That's why start with me makes so much sense. That's why you have to, yes, it takes courage to show up. Don't take a big swing at this. Get help. Start small. Start with smaller groups. Start with people you really trust. 
but the practice of all of this, of, of finding that courage in yourself so that you can create that safety for others is really the point of Start With Me. Great. I think that's a great place to end on this first topic of um, how to start with me as a way of seeing and taking responsibility for the system around you that you're creating, which ultimately enables you to achieve your goals or holds you back from them. Thank you for that, Jeff. Of course. It's always a pleasure. Mm -hmm.